Hello again. This is Gary Meese with the case against. I think I may have said the last episode that we were going to be continuing to talk about the phone call girls. And I, I am going to resume talking, uh, getting into the phone call girls' statements after this particular episode. Uh, but I think we've already sufficiently shown that the, the the basic witnesses, Heather Quiet, Holly George, Jennifer Bearden, none of them, according to their own statements, were talking to Damien Eccles during the time when he and Jason Baldwin and Jason Mis- J- Jesse Miskelly were in Robin Hood Hills killing the three little boys. In fact, none of them talked to him from roughly no later than a bit after five and probably earlier than that. Probably earlier than that, according to Jennifer Bearden's statement, until at the very earliest 9.20, according to Jennifer Bearden, and perhaps later. So that gave him plenty of time to commit the crime and do the cleanup. And uh, Heather Clyde's statement, which is the has some reliability issues, but also is closest to the uh, the date of the, the crime and the date of her arrest. Uh, says that she they weren't talking to Damien until 10 o'clock or later that evening, which means he had plenty of time to be standing on the side of the road when the Hollingsworths drove by and spotted him in muddy clothes, just a few hundred feet from the side of the crime. But we're going to talk today about another crucial aspect to the case, probably, again, one of the most crucial aspects of the case, which is and the, uh, which is the Jesse Miskelly confession of June 3rd, 1993. And we're not going to revisit the confession itself because we've gone over that. And I gave somewhat short shrift the other day to... Uh, August 19, 1993, conversation between Dan Stidham and his client, Jesse Miskelly Jr., uh, concerning his case status uh, a couple of months after he'd been arrested. But before they came up with the false confession claims that they concocted in roughly September of 1993, up to that point they were talking a very different game. As you will see today, they were talking plea bargains and, and Jesse Miskelly was not talking about false confessions or being coerced. He was talking about how he talked to police. And his lawyer didn't seem to have any problem with that. So I'm going to go through the actual conversation between Stidham and uh, Miskelly today. As usual with conversations with Miskelly, he's not the most articulate of fellows because we're not saying he's it's stupid, perhaps. I think he's not particularly intelligent. I think his IQ is probably around 72, 73, which makes him a little less intelligent than the average inmate, but not much. Uh, but he's not, uh, he's not retarded. He's not developmentally disabled by federal standards or state of Arkansas standards. And... Uh, Stidham's kind of full of himself, and he goes on and on at some points about the plea bargaining, but he's actually not too bad in this particular, uh, on this particular thing. So uh, I may cut some of his, if I get tired of reading out all his talk about the plea bargains down toward the end, I may cut that out, but I'm not cutting out anything vital, and I'm probably going to go ahead and just read through all that. I'm just not sure how tiresome it's going to be. But we're going to get into some vital information before that. So let's start. And Dan Stidham speaking. And this is not in my book. I mean, I, I allude to it, but this is an actual transcript. It's available on the Callahan site, callahanmysite.com. I highly recommend if you really want to learn something about the case actually read the facts. If you disagree with my interpretation of it, fine, but please, if you're going to disagree with my interpretation of things, at least have it based somewhat on fact rather than some 
documentary that left out most of the facts of the case, instead relies upon uh, feelings-based impressions and a great deal of misdirection and its own and its own set of prejudices that it brings to the case. Dan Stidham says, today's date is August 19th, 1993. Myself, Dan Stidham, at the Clay County Detention Center in Piggott, Arkansas, and in the room with me is Jesse Miskelly Jr. Approximate time is 11 a.m. And Jesse, I just wanted to ask you a few things, go over some of the things that I viewed at the police station on Tuesday. There were some photographs that the police showed me of the creek where the bodies were found. The creek wasn't very wide, is that correct? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmative, <laughs> it says affirmatively indicating. Uh, Stidham, do you remember how deep it was? Miss Kelly, it wasn't too deep, I can't remember how deep it was. Now, for somebody who's complained about all the leading questions by the police, police Stidham does a great deal of leading questions. Uh, does oodles of leading questions throughout this interview. It furnishes all sorts of information to Miss Kelly just so Miss Kelly can say yes back to it. However, uh, when you get a free form question like, do you remember how deep it was? Miss Kelly has no trouble saying it wasn't too deep. I can't remember how deep it was. And the truth is it wasn't too deep. And, uh, some discrepancy about whether Miss Kelly ever actually stepped into the ditch or not. Apparently had some fear of actually getting his, uh, getting in over his head because he had problems with his ears. So uh, it's unlikely he d did a whole lot of delving into that, but the ditch just wasn't that deep. And Miss Kelly says it wasn't. Okay, uh, so Stidham says, okay, um, there was a low part of the bank and there was a high part of the bank. Does that pretty much describe it? Uh, Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, uh, there were some old trees there where the bank went through some tree roots and stuff. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Stidham, okay, did you ever at any time see the boys riding bikes? And Jesse goes, uh-uh negatively indicating. Stidham, you ever see their bikes? Jesse, I don't know what color their bikes were. <laughs> he did what he did, you know, it's not exactly answering the question. Stidham, well, did you ever see them on their bikes that day at all? Jesse, I never seen them before, which again, doesn't exactly answer the question. Stidham, uh, so you never seen the boys before? Jesse, uh-uh negatively indicating Stidham so when you first seen them that day they weren't riding bikes they were on foot but by the way I'm reading what the transcript says so if it sounds ungrammatical it's just because that's the way Dan Stidham talks he's almost as bad as Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. Um, not that I'm perfect and most people aren't but he's not particularly grammatically correct in his articulation shall we say uh jesse no they was on their bikes stidham they were on their bikes jesse uh-huh affirmatively indicating okay do you remember what color they were red i think red and black stidham one was black one was red and black what was the other bike jesse i didn't see it Stidham, you just seen one bike? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, okay, did you ever touch any of their bikes? Jesse, no. Okay, you left before Damien and J Jason did, so you didn't do anything with their bikes, did you? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, when you left, you went up the creek and got out by Blue Beacon? Jesse, I got on the service road. Stidham, okay, and Blue Bacon is the truck wash that was right next to the small woods where the murders were 
perpetrated. It's on the service road next to the interstate. Okay, you didn't go back the same way you came in down by the video place. Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Which probably means, probably mean it's probably, a, he does this in here, but it's probably a double, I don't think he really understands negative and double, I know he doesn't understand how to answer negatively framed questions. Uh, and he's doing a double negative here, indicating which would indicate he actually did come back by the video place, but that's not what he did. Negatively indicating, I, I went through the service road pause from the Blue Beacon, and it was quite a while to walk. Stidham, so you left. When you got out, you come by the service road by Blue Beacon. You just walked back home by the service road. So you stayed near the interstate almost the whole way. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. So if there's any question about the route that he took, and it's still not totally clear because there's two interstates there, there's different paths, different ways you could cross over to get to the other side because he was going to have to cross the combined interstate or go up to where the interstates have, uh, are, have broken off. and I-55 goes north. And I don't know why he would do that, because he would just be going further. So he was going to have to cross the combined I-55 and I-40 uh, interstate in West Memphis at some point. Which is something that certainly can be done. All you have to have is a break in the traffic. But it's not so easily done. Uh, Jesse describes himself in other places as running, so we don't know how far he ran. We don't know how fast he was walking. We do know it's, you know, it's a it's a two a little bit over it's a little bit over two miles or so. Uh, from his house to uh, the woods. Now, if you take some circuitous route, it's going to be a much further. It's probably shorter if you go, I would say it's shorter if you go as the crow flies, and Jesse's going to take the shortest route possible on foot. But there's no quick, easy way to getting there. However, Damien walked more or less the same way all the time, so it's not as if it's impossible or nobody ever does it. Uh, so he said, Jesse says, I went through the service road, pause from the Blue Beacon, and it was quite a while to walk. Stidham, so you left, you when you got out to come by the service road by Blue Beacon, you just walked back home by the service road, so you stayed near the interstate almost the whole way. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmative, affirmatively indicating, Stidham, anybody see you, or did you see anybody or recognize anybody? Jesse, I didn't see nobody I recognized. So, if there's a question about why he wasn't cited doing this, it's because nobody that saw him, that knew him, saw him, and he didn't see anybody he knew. Doesn't sound that unlikely. There is quite a bit of foot traffic around there. Not a whole lot, but, you know, enough that somebody uh, walking as a pedestrian is not an unusual sight. Okay, Stidham. Okay, you remember there being a stick out there that day in the creek, one that was kind of long and skinny, looked like a, maybe a broom handle? But it wasn't a broom handle. It was a stick that maybe the bark. Jesse, I don't. I never seen one. Stidham stripped off of it. Uh, talking about the bark on the stick. Jesse, I don't remember seeing one. I remember Damien carried one, a stick, a lot. He carried a stick a lot. Stidham, what did it look like? Jesse, it was grooved in the handles and stuff, you know, carved like, you know, kind of a wizardly stick, just like you'd expect Damien to be carrying. Stidham, carved? Just let me, just let Let's just try and draw a picture of it here. I don't, you don't see a pencil in here anywhere, do you? Jesse on the desk. Well, 
Imagine a broomstick. You know, a broomstick is obviously made out of something mechanical, a wood lathe. This is kind of a long skinny stick and then there's places where the bark has been peeled off and it's like stripes. Does that sound familiar? Jesse, uh-huh, yeah, I'd say it's about a good bit longer than that. Stenham, you're saying Damien carried that around a lot? Jesse, yeah, he carried it around a lot, inaudible. Stidham, did he have it with him that day? Jesse, I don't remember. See, we sort of reach a dead, all this talk about the stick, and then we reach this dead end. Stidham, don't remember if he had it that day or not? Jesse, I don't remember because I didn't hardly pay attention to him. I just walked. I didn't hardly look at him or nothing. Now, we're bringing up the stick. We're having this big conversation about it. Stidham is suggesting to Jesse that, hey, there's, didn't Damien have a stick? He doesn't say exactly, hey, did Damien have a stick out there that day? Well, let's see what he did. Oh, don't you re don't remember if he had it that day or not? There's an implied suggestion in there as if he's expecting Miss Skelly to perhaps come up with a detail. Certainly, Miss Skelly could have interpreted it that way if he was so inclined to do so. And we get the impression he's highly suggestible, which he's actually not. Because what does he say? Oh, I don't remember. I didn't pay any attention to him. I just walked. I didn't hardly look at him or nothing. In other words, he doesn't come up with a story about the stick, even though it's thrown out in front of him and suggested. He, uh, he doesn't, when he's asked, you didn't come back the same way you came on down by the video place, he doesn't change his mind and go, oh, you know, I forgot, I really did go back by the video place. He says, no, I, I went home across the, by the service road, and it was quite a way to walk. And let's get back to this dialogue between Stidham and Miss Kelly. Stidham, the bag had beer cans in it. Uh, was a paper sack? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, you don't remember what kind of beer it was. <laughs> uh, Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Well, you know, Stidham could have said, Do you, what kind of beer was it? But instead he does this negative in there. Stidham, uh, you remember seeing Damien, or did he actually do anything with the boys' clothes? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Because when I left, they, you know, they were sitting right there beside them. Again, there's this implied suggestion here that maybe Jesse's going to come up with some information about the clothes. And what does he do? He's going to supply this detail, which is uh, the clothes were sitting right there beside them. Stidham, clothes were piled up. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. When I left, that's where they was at. Stidham, you didn't see what Jason did with the knife? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. A again, you know, there's this implied suggestion. Well, maybe you can come up with a story about what Jason did with the knife. No, Jesse's not having any of that. He just goes, oh, I, don't, I don't know what he did with the knife. Uh-uh. Stidham, what did the knife look like? You told me once before, but I want to make sure I understand. Uh, Jesse, it's like a like a buck pocket knife. Buck knife. Stidham folds. Yeah. Stidham, about four or five inches, the whole knife. Jesse, oh, probably about that long, indicating. So he did some something with his hands. Stidham, how long was the knife? Jesse, not counting the ends of it, I would say the blade was about something like that, indicating. Stidham, six inches or so? Jesse, without counting the whole thing. So Jesse Miskelly is saying there's a six inch blade on this knife. It's not just a little pocket knife the way Bob Ruff was explaining it the other day. It wasn't a little pocket knife that Jesse Miskelly was describing. It was a large pocket knife, a pocket knife with a six inch blade. And that is not, 
Jesse's description of the length. That's Dan Stidham's description of the length when Jesse shows him the length of the blade, and it's very similar to the length that, that he described when he was talking to the police detectives. And in fact, he his description of the knife is very consistent with his earlier con with this June third confession, where he talked about being a folding knife. Uh, uh, I don't. I know he talks at some point about it being a buck knife. I don't remember if it was in that particular confession, but you know he's talking about a type of knife rather than a a, a brand name, uh, a pocket knife, basically. But not just a little dinky two-inch, three-inch pocket knife. We're talking about a substantial knife. But not a Rambo knife, admittedly. Jesse, brown, darkish. What color handle did it have? Jesse, brown, darkish brown. Eh, this is a detail he comes up with. Didn't need any help with that. Stidham, darkish brown. You think you'd recognize that knife if you saw it again? If you seen it again? Jesse, yeah. Stidham, you ever seen it before that day? Jesse, not that day. I'd seen it before, though. Uh, Stidham, where at? Jesse, at his house, Jason's house. Stidham, where did he keep it? Jesse, sometimes he carries it around in his pocket and sometimes he leaves it in his drawers and stuff because he's always coming up with all kinds of stuff, knives and all that. And, you know, uh, that is exactly the, the description we get from Baldwin himself and his brother and other relatives about his dealings where he's always trading this and that and doing this and that. Uh not not we're not, I'm not talking about this particular knife, but we know he had a large knife and an ice axe uh, under his bed at home, hidden away from his mother at the time of the killings that he got rid of very quickly. And he was always trading knives and T-shirts and music tapes. And it's interesting, uh, Miskelly, who supposedly just barely knew Jason, if you listen to Jason now, knows all this about Jason. And he says he's seen the knife over at uh, Jason's house. Now, he could be lying, admittedly, but he's seen, he's seen Jason with this knife before. And this accords with what we know about Jason, that he liked, he liked knives and he liked trading knives. Okay, Stidham goes on. Aaron. Aaron Hutchison. He lived down the street from you, right? Jesse. Uh-huh. Affirmatively indicating. Stidham. Still does. He told the police that um, him and two of the boys that got killed had been going up to Robin Hood Hills and getting up in a treehouse and that they'd been going up there and watching some teenagers have sex at the spot where the t murders took place. He says there's five or six teenagers and sometimes there was girls and sometimes there were just guys screwing each other in the butt and uh, sometimes their faces were painted. Do you know anything about that? Now there's a whole lot of suggested things going on there, right? What is Jesse, what is the response of Jesse Miskelly Jr. to this, this list of suggested things? Uh-uh. Negatively indicating. Do you know anything about that? Uh-uh. That is his response. Uh, Stidham, were you ever at a cult meeting out in county somewhere? Not where the murders took place, where there was an orgy or their faces were painted or anything? Jesse, I, I, never, I ain't never seen nobody's face painted. Je Stidham, y'all didn't do that when you went to these meetings? Je Jesse, uh-huh. It says, uh-huh, but it's it's negatively indicating. I never know, far as I've ever seen people's pa face painted was on TV and stuff, that's it. In other words, it's all this suggestion here about uh, these cult meetings, faces being painted, the trip with Vicki Hutchison out to Turl Twist for this cult meeting, etc., and Jesse just doesn't buy into any of it. He's, these are suggestions that are thrown to him. Uh, Stidham's not telling him he has to say this, but he's certainly offering it up as something he can affirm. And he, he 
turns down all these suggestions. He doesn't t pick up on any of these as something he's interested in talking about. Stidham, Vic, Vicki Hutchinson told the police that about a week or two weeks after the murders that you, Damien, and Jason, and some other teenagers went out to a place in the county and had a cult meeting and a big orgy. That makes sense to you at all? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, that didn't happen? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Again, Miskelly is not capable of understanding a negatively framed question. Stidham, Damien and Jason were pretty serious about this devil-worshipping stuff, weren't they? Jesse, right. Stidham, were you real serious about it? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, you were just kind of hanging out? Did you ever see them cut anybody at a devil worshippers meeting? Again, another suggestion. Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, or, or I know you talked to places you've seen them kill dogs and stuff. Jesse, yeah, not long after the, you know, before the murder ever happened, I always stayed around my house and people behind me. We always went to dais and stuff and practiced wrestling and stuff. And, you know, this, he's dodging the question in a certain sense, but he's really talking about, well, you know, he was mostly involved in doing his, his, his own things and he wasn't closely involved, he wasn't closely, closely involved with Damien and Jason and their witch cult practices. That's what he's saying, and you know that's that actually agrees with uh, the general impression you get, which is Miskelly's not smart enough to really get too intrigued by the the witch cult practices. It requires a certain amount of intelligence to sort of buy into buy into that because it involves some slightly higher concepts than he probably is capable of really forming. And uh, it also ties into how Jason and, and uh, Damien described their relationship with Miss Kelly, which they weren't close friends. And I, I'm not suggesting that. And I think it'd be foolish for anybody to suggest that they were. But they were acquainted with each other. They did things with each other. It was a somewhat contentious relationship, but it was a relationship. And I think in the case of Jason and, and uh, Jesse, it was even a friendship, as J Jason himself is referred to at various times, as Jesse is his friend, and other times he says he barely knows him. But Jason's a liar. So is Damien, and for that matter, Jesse is too. He's just not as big a liar as the other two. Stidham, so you didn't do a whole lot of devil-worshipping stuff. Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Again, negatively framed question, and he answers it in the negative. Uh, Stidham, did you ever see them torture an animal? Jesse, no, nah, not walking or anything, with the dogs walking. <laughs> what, I, what does that mean? I have no idea. Stidham, what would they do? Just kill it and tell you about cooking it or something? How many times did you see this? Jesse, about two or three times. Stidham, so how would they kill the dog or cat or whatever? Jesse, cut them by the throat and stuff. Just walk up to it and cut its throat? Jesse, yeah, but most of the dogs right there in the lakeshore, we knew whose dogs they were and stuff. Stidham, okay. And that's kind of a non sequitur there, and Stidham gives a non sequitur answer. And Jesse goes on, because uh, Aaron always talked about, you know, that he knows everything about the killing and stuff, and Vicky always tells him to shut up because he don't know because he wasn't there. And Stidham asks, again, a non sequitur answer to the, the, it's off on a tangent here, but it's an interesting tangent. Because Stidham asked, you know he wasn't there? Jesse, right. Of course he knows he wasn't there, because Jesse was there. Stidham, he told the police he was there hiding in the trees and seen it all happen. Jesse, he, he lies a lot. Stidham, of course he also said that you, 
And Jesse interrupts because Vicky, Vicky don't let him go nowhere. He stays in that trailer park. Stidham, there's no way that he could have been there that day. Jesse, nope. Stidham, uh, the night before the police came and got you and talked to you, the day that you got arrested, you spent the night with Vicky and Aaron. Jesse, right. And uh, Vicky had gotten apparently gotten kind of paranoid and the story at the time was that she thought that Damien was stalking her that he'd been uh, he'd pulled on wires in her house and pulled uh, uh, that were going into her house and pulled electronic equipment around and had done various other things at night and she was scared of him and she later framed this to make it sound as if she was scared of back when John Mark Byers was the favorite alternative suspect she framed it that she was actually more scared of John Mark Byers and that's who she was really scared of and the truth is and then since then she said that everything she's ever said has been a lie which is sort of a self-refuting statement because even that's a lie some of the stuff she says has to be true just because just in the basic factual knowledge that all of it, any of us have we follow the case some of it is true so we can't determine what's true and what's not because she's she is been a perpetual liar and an exaggerator throughout the thing her son was an unfortunate victim who of uh the investigation didn't start out that way but he became one by the end uh when they didn't I'm not think I don't think the West Memphis police were particularly guilty of this, but they just c continued interviewing the boy long after he'd become any any there was any past any chance of him being useful to the case. Anyway, Jesse affirms he spent the night with Vicky and Aaron, and he's sleeping on the couch. Supposedly and probably, probably in fact, that's probably what actually happened. Stidham, you knew that you were there the day the boys got killed. Did Vicky ever ask you about it or? Jesse, she didn't ask me about it. Stidham, apparently she had some sort of tape recorder. She was trying to tape record you and Jason and Damien in the bedroom talking about Jesse. She don't, she don't know Jason. She ain't never seen Jason. She met Damien a couple of times. She told me that, she, and again, you know, this is Jesse Miskelly correcting uh, attorney Dan Stidham's mistakes. She told me that, that she heard, she saw this dude with black hair and no shirt on, and she asked me, uh, do I know a dude named Damien? And I said, yeah. She said, does he live out at Lakeshore? I said, yeah. She said, I want to meet him because, you know, because I want to try to get in that cult and stuff too. And then not too long ago, she started getting, went to the library and getting books on witchcraft and all that. And uh, I, I saw her and I asked her, you know, do you want him to come over and meet you or something? One day we went over there and got uh, Damien and he came over to her house and they talked and stuff. Sometimes they wouldn't hardly say nothing. Stidham, who still doesn't quite get this. Was Jason there that day? Jesse, uh-uh negatively indicating Stidham just you and Damien Jesse because Vicky always told all didn't want nobody to know she's liking Damien she always make up excuse that she's going to the store or something or she's got to carry me somewhere she went by Jason's house and got Damien So then she's telling the police all this stuff just to get attention. Jesse, I don't know, because Damien, when they picked me up, they told me that uh, Vicky came up there not too long ago, you know, not even awake. I don't think they told me that Vicky was up there. Again, that's not really answering the question. Um, but uh, as throughout this interview, Jesse Miskelly Jr. is just not that suggestible. Let's talk about uh, the day they picked you up. You were over there, and the day your dad came and got you over at Vicky's house and took you to the police station. Is that right? 
Jesse, um, they came to Vicky's house, got me, and I was asleep. They came and got me and told me that uh, there was a police officer wanted to talk to me and stuff, and they told me about the guy that uh, we seen, and I said, all right. I said, where is he at? They said, at the shop. So I said, well, I've got to get me go get me some uh, some more clothes on and stuff. So I came back to my house and got and put me on some shorts and a T-shirt and then came to the shop, and I got in the car with... Uh, Mike Allen, Stidham. Mike Allen, Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, is he a detective? Jesse, I guess, I don't know. Stidham, did he have a uniform or just plain clothes? Uh, Jesse, it, something like yours. Stidham, okay. Jesse, and he talked to me for a while, and then we was going back to get my dad's signature. Stidham, take the lie detector test. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. And then we met him and my dad signed it. Stidham, did they at any time ever threaten you or twist your arm or pull their guns out of the holster or, or anything to make you say something you didn't want to say? Now here Stidham is and he's making all these suggestions. Threaten, twist your arm, pull their guns out of their holsters. A lot of suggestions there for the very supposedly very suggestible Jesse Miskelly Jr. Jesse's response. They were sitting there and talking to me. One of them did because, you know, the test, you know, they let you know if, you, you know, you're lying or anything. Stidham, did they tell you that they knew you were lying on the lie detector? And Jesse gives some sort of some sort of unintelligible answer. He seems to be, you know, he seems to be um, avoiding giving an answer to Stidham here. But Stidham goes, did they tell you, Jesse? They told me I was lying and stuff. I said, no. And then uh, my nerves got all, you know, how it is when your nerves get all messed up. You just go blank. That's what it did. Stidham. And they told you that you flunked the lie detector test. Jesse, he told me that there were some parts I lied about and stuff I can't remember. Stidham, okay, so basically what you're saying is that you basically volunteered that you told them. <coughs> Let me go back over this again. This is crucial. This is really basic. So basically what you're saying is that basically you volunteered that you told them. You told them what happened and they didn't force you to do it. And Jesse goes, uh-uh, negatively indicating. And again, there's a negative framing to the question, and Jesse answers, <laughs> Jesse answers in the negative to these negatively framed questions. Instead of ask for clarification, is that what you're saying? Right. They didn't force you to do it. He's asking, is that what you're saying? And he's referring back, they didn't force you to do it. And Jesse says, right. Okay, did they make any promises? You any promises? Talk about giving you the $30,000 reward? Uh, Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, or say they'd let you go home if that you just told them what happened? Jesse, they didn't say nothing. They just said, you tell me what we need to know and stuff, and we'll help you and stuff. In other words, all this talk about threats, promises, the reward, all this, according to Jesse Miscelli Jr. talking to his attorney in August, in a private conversation in August of 1993, Jesse Miscelli Jr. is saying all these things that are alleged about how this confession was, was obtained were basically incorrect, except... They did the the attorney said you talk to us and we'll try to help you out and you failed the lie detector test. And there's a bit more to it than that, but it's nothing. It's nothing that the police haven't described, which basically is they showed him uh, this picture of this one of the boys, and not a in the picture of the. Let me before we even get into that, the picture they showed was a picture of uh, Chris Byers. Uh, it was almost unrecognizable, but uh, it was 
all you basically all you see is his face and his face was he he was he had been beaten up but it was it was not some sort of horrible horrible photo it was horrible in the sense that here's a dead child but it was not some sort of horrible gruesome photo and that was it it was it was not a, a shocker photo where they showed him a bunch of autopsy photos as people talk about it just that didn't happen According and that's true according to Jesse Miskelly Jr. and the police. But you know, if you want to believe some other in some other reality, go ahead and do it. They didn't say anyway. They didn't say nothing. They just said, "You tell me what we need to know and stuff, and we'll help you and stuff." Stidham, so let me tell you what Detective Ridge told me, and you tell me if it's pretty much what happened. He said that you remember who Detective Ridge is. He's kind of, yes, he, I, I, I remember the name. I figure out what he looks like. Stidham, you remember Inspector Gitchell? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, he's... He said that him and Ridge were talking to you and they asked you how you felt after you found out about the murders and they said that you went out in the woods and was crying and they, he said, after you said that, they kind of thought that maybe you had something to do with this and they started asking you about, uh, about that when they showed you the pictures of the boys. Hmm, no indication. They showed you a picture of the boys. Jesse, they showed me, they said, we've got a picture of one of them boys, and they showed me and asked me, and I started telling them stuff, talking to them before they even asked me. This is the crucial line here, talking to them before they even asked me. Miskelly started crying when he's talking about going out into the woods. Police are catching on that maybe he's a little guilty about all this. Maybe he's feeling a great deal of guilt about all this. Because he hasn't confessed anything up to this point. Excuse me a second. So they show him a picture of Chris Byers. And and all it took from that point on was uh, that was enough for Jesse. I started telling them stuff, talking to them before they even asked me. So who, who was coming up with the answers before anybody else? Jesse Miskelly Jr. Stidham, were you crying and upset when you seen the picture? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. I started crying, and they tapped me on my shoulder and said it'd be okay. Doesn't sound like a threat, does it? <coughs> Stidham, excuse me, he's caught this coughing. I'm trying to get through. Hopefully it'll clear up. Uh, they just asked you to tell them everything that had happened. Jesse, and uh, Ridge, he told me that when I was talking to him, he told me that he said, uh, "No, he said we're going to make sure that you uh, you get uh, electrocuted." <laughs> Stidham, he said that you were going to get electrocuted. Jesse, uh huh, affirmatively indicating that's what he told me that they're going to make sure they get a needle stuck in my arm and stuff. Stidham, did he say that before you told him what happened or after? After. So they, they weren't using a threat uh, to get Miss Kelly to talk. This is maybe some somewhat loose talk after the confession, but it was after. So Stidham says, so after you told Jesse, because it was, it, was it was like in the morning that he told me that I was up front, and that's when he told me that he was going to make sure that I get a needle stuck in my arm and stuff. Stidham, that was after you told him what happened. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Because he kept on asking me and asking me and asking me stuff when they carried me back down. Stidham, he's having the, Stidham's having the same problem we're having understanding because Jesse's not that great on 
setting up as the critics of the confessions will note that he's not that great on setting up times, but anyway, in sequences of events, Stidham, I want to make sure I understand. After you did the lie detector test, they told you you weren't telling the truth. Jesse, right. Stidham, then they asked how you felt after the murders, and you said that you went in the woods and started crying. Then you sh they showed you the picture of one of the little boy's bodies, which is not exactly ex what happened, but that's close enough. Then you got upset and you said, I'll try to tell you what happened. Jesse, right. Then you told them what happened on the tape, right? Right. And then I went and they carried me up front. So up to this point, Jesse's not describing any sort of coercion, threats, anything except took, took the lie detector test, they started crying, they asked him some questions, they show him a picture of the boys, they suggest maybe he should be talking to them, and he talks. Before they, come, before they ask him anything, he's already talking, according to Jesse Miskelly Jr. And then I went up front and they carried me up front, Jet Stidham up front of the police station, our department. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicated. And they asked me about, you know, they said your dad told us if we'd really get on you that you'd tell us the truth. I said, okay, i tell you the truth. And I started talking to him, and then they said, no, nah, you're lying, you're lying. Stidham, this was after you told them the first time? Jesse, right. Stidham, was the tape recorder on then? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, the first time you told them? Jesse, the first time I told them the tape, they didn't have the tape recorder. The second time I told them, they had the tape recorder. Stidham, so after they showed you the picture and you tell them what happened, they took you out front and then they told you that your dad said if they got it on you hard enough, you, they'd t you'd tell them the truth and they said you were lying, so then they took you back in, right? Jesse, I was up front, still in the building. I'm not sure that really answers the question, but, but anyway, and but Stidham has kind of the same reaction that I have to that, that, which is he says, okay, Jesse, I started talking to them, and Detective Ridge said, no, nah, you're lying, and stuff like that. And I said, no, I'm not, and I started crying, and they told me that they're going to make sure I get electrocuted, what he told me. Okay, then you went back there to the office with Inspector Gitchell. Uh, D Detective Gitchell was in there with us. Now, Gitchell was in there for both sessions. He was there for the early session and also the follow-up session. This is all very confusing. Okay, Stidham, okay, so you were still out front, though. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Rich Stidham, so Ridge told you he was going to make sure you got the electric chair. Jesse, yeah, he came after that. They came back down to my, to where I was at. Stidham, in his office, Inspector Gitchell's office, or was it some just somebody else's office or a room, or do you remember? Jesse, I went back down. He doesn't answer the question, obviously. Stidham, was it down the hall toward the back of the building? Jesse, I went back down in the cell. Stidham went down to the cell. Jesse, where I spent the night at. <coughs> Stidham. Okay, so when did they turn the tape record on then? Jesse, it was during the day when they picked me up. <laughs> now, Stidham's going to have the same reaction that I'm having, which is, Stidham, okay, so now I'm confused because you told me that after they showed you the picture that you got upset and told them what happened. Did they have the tape recorder on then? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating, not when they showed me the picture. Well, that's, according to everything we know, that's true. That doesn't really answer the, the, the problem here about when these conversations went on about the supposed execution talk. Stidham, okay. It was during the day when they picked me up. Stidham's still trying to get a straight answer here. Stidham, they had the tape recorder on. You didn't tell them what happened, the real story of what happened, until they showed you the picture, right? Jesse, right. 
Stidham, so did they turn the tape recorder on then after you told them? Jesse, after they showed me the picture, then they got a tape recorder, then they asked me again, and I told them. Stidham, to tell them what happened. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. That's Again, this is all, as far as the standard story. This is exactly in line with that. Let's see how this goes. Stidham, okay, did they tell you that you were going to get the electric chair after you gave the tape statement or before? Jesse, after. Stidham, okay. Jesse, but... After the, that day, I told them I wanted to go to bed, and then they said, okay. Then that morning, they woke me up, carried me up front, and that's when they asked me that. Stidham, asked me what? Jesse, that I was going to get the uh, electric chair. So, that was the next day or the next morning? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, after you gave the statement. Okay, okay. Uh, Jason, ever carry that? In other words, this all this talk about the execution, and we don't really know the context. Maybe they were just explaining the charges to him. We don't really know. But it apparently didn't occur until the next morning. So he was not being threatened at the time with execution if he didn't tell, according to Jesse Miskelly Jr. himself, under the scrutiny of his defense attorney is not alleging that he was being threatened with death if he didn't tell the story. It happened the next day, the next morning, after after the confessions. As Stidham says, after the statement, you gave the statement. Okay, okay. Uh, Jason, ever carry that unintelligible knife to school? Of course, you weren't in school with him, were you? You'd already quit school, right? Jesse, uh-huh, I just quit school last year. Stidham, so you didn't go to school at all last year. Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating, I came back. Stidham, I need to ask you about this. They found a t-shirt at your house, a gray t-shirt that had blood on it. Do you know anything about that? Jesse, gray t-shirt? I got a couple of gray t-shirts. I don't know where they were. There's one I wear. There's one I wear. Stidham, you weren't wearing a gray t-shirt that day, were you? Jesse, uh-uh. And in fact, he's he's uh he was wearing a according to his own story a white t-shirt. This we'll find out in a second. And again, there's negatively framed. There's a negatively framed question, and Jesse answers with a negative uh-uh, which would be a yes actually Stidham you were wearing a black one weren't you here comes the black t-shirt meme and Jesse says white Stidham white that's right had a basketball in front Jesse uh-huh affirmatively indicating he's very consistent in his stories about what to down to what t-shirt he was wearing Stidham can you explain why a gray t-shirt had blood on it at your house Jesse, I always, every time I get mad at my daddy for something, I always go out and hurt myself. Stidham, hurt yourself. Jesse, busting bottles and stuff, I usually hurt myself. Stidham, hit them with your fist or something? Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, that's probably what the blood was on the t-shirt. Jesse, either that or uh, I did something wrong with or something. I always cut myself unintelligible. Stidham, uh, did you have any blood on your shirt or clothes that day out there? Jesse, uh-uh. <coughs> Negatively indicating. After the murders happened, you say you only ran into Damien one time? Jesse, after the, the, the murders, I ran into him a couple, five or six times maybe. Stidham, did he brag about it or talk to you about it? Jesse, uh-uh. Stidham, just kind of didn't say anything about it at all. Jesse didn't say a word to him. Do you know anything about this treehouse that Aaron was talking about being out there? Jesse, uh-uh, negatively indicating. No, I didn't see the treehouse out there where we was at. I never did look up in the trees or anything. 
Stidham, was there a lot of blood there on the ground? Jesse, I don't know. Stidham, out there where they were hitting them with sticks and stuff? Jesse, yeah, there was a lot of blood. He just changed his mind from he didn't know a second ago. Stidham, a little bit or a whole lot or... And with choices, Jesse says, I'd say a lot. Uh, Stidham, okay, and that was at the low bank of the creek. Jesse, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Stidham, which, be going, which would be on this side going toward Blue Beacon. Jesse, right. Stidham, that's where actually all the hitting and cutting took place. Yes. And so much for the... I just saw something, some ridiculous video by this whacked out chick yesterday about uh, the, how this was a dump site. It wasn't a dump site. There was a lot of blood discovered at the scene. Uh, remnants of what would have been a lot of blood discovered at the scene when they did luminol testing in the, next, in the few weeks after that, even after the, the area had been out in the sun and the wind and quite a bit of rain there was still some blood traces left and you know the luminol testing showed the the attacks occurred right where jesse miskelly jr said they did uh then where the little boy was when jason cut him was he lying on the ground there Jesse, he was laying on the ground there. Can't remember whereabouts, not unless if I was there to see it, I'd say whereabouts. Uh, stood him, okay, and when he cut his thing off, you don't know what happened to it. Did you see him throw it? Jesse, I seen him sling his arm that way, indicating. Stidham, was it towards the creek or towards that way or towards like the woods and stuff? So he didn't throw it like toward the creek. Jesse, huh, uh, negatively indicating. Stidham, okay, you know anything about Jason having a pair of pants that says killer or unintelligible on it? Do you know anything about that? Uh, Jesse, huh? Uh, I, uh, since uh, where I live right now, I don't hardly, you know, talk with Jason or anything, not unless I call him on the phone and stuff. So, you know, he's around Jason some, but he calls him on the phone, apparently. Stidham, well, let me tell you, I've seen the photographs of the bodies and the injuries, and especially the one to the buyer's boy. He got his thing cut off, especially, especially gruesome. And when a when a jury sees that they're going to be sees that they're going to be very, very angry and upset. Uh, you know, as I told you before, they've got you charged with capital murder. When a person is charged with capital murder, the only two punishments supported by law are death by elect. Or actually, it's death by lethal injection, they don't have the electric chair anymore, or life in prison without the possibility of ever getting out on parole. No parole. Those are the only two things that could happen if the jury finds you guilty of capital murder. The prosecutor called me the other day and said that if you were willing to testify, and he, then he says stopped, it's an inquiry about the tape recording, and Miss Skelly says still on. Stidham says, okay, I'm going to leave it on. Uh, you realize that I'm taping this conversation, okay? Well, he called and said that if you'd be willing to testify and help with the case, that he would recommend you get life in prison with the possibility of getting paroled. He would waive the death penalty. You wouldn't have to worry about the jury giving you a death sentence. I think I'm going to skip all this here, which he's talking about negotiating for the death penalty. He says, he describes all this all its possibilities, and he asked Jesse, do you understand the difference between life in prison and the death penalty? And Jesse says, yes. Uh, I told the prosecutor that I would prefer that you plead guilty and get a certain number of years. That way I know, that way you know exactly someday when you're going to get out. And he goes on and on about this, and he says, but that's your decision and not mine, and I can't make it for you. All I do is lay out the options for you. Jesse says, I, I, I don't want to do too much time. You know, I don't want to be lying to an attorney. Uh, Stidham, well, Jesse, you know I understand how about what you're saying. And Jesse's saying, you know, 
he doesn't want to be lying. He doesn't. He doesn't want either one of these options. That, another relevant thing is Jesse was not comfortable with. He he told untruths manifestly, but he wasn't that comfortable with lying to what he perceived as authority figures, and this figured in greatly in his subsequent confessions to prosecutors, state troopers, etc., including a confession over the objections of the very attorney he's talking to here. Uh, Stedham, do you understand this is a very, very serious situation? There are these little boys here are dead, one of which was mutilated, and that a jury is going to take that very, very seriously. Do you understand that? Jesse, uh-huh. And he goes on quite some time about how much time Jesse could spend in jail. And Jesse says, I don't want to spend, you know, almost all my life in prison, in jail, you know, in prison. And then he goes on again. Uh, and he says, you indicate to me you wouldn't be willing to consider that somewhere in the regular 50-year sentence, knowing you would have to serve all of that, of course. Is that correct? And Jesse says yes. And he talks about all these possibilities for getting out early. And they're talking about uh, not a plea deal, but something like a 40, 50 year sentence. And Stidham says, uh, that's what I'm going to do then, is I'm going to tell the prosecutor that we're not interested in his offer, and then we'll go from there. Okay, I'm going to talk to your dad, and I'm going to get him back up to talk to you, and the three of us will sit down and talk about this. Because if we don't get a deal made, we're going to have to start getting ready for trial. You're doing real good. You're not talking to anybody, and you haven't been talking to anybody in here, have you? About the case, don't do it. It's just you need to maintain your silence. Don't talk to anybody about the case but me and Mr. Crow, etc. And the confession is what's hurting us right now. And they ask him one more question. If you've seen a picture of this stick that you said Damien carried around, would you recognize it? And Jesse says, uh-huh. And, you know, it indicates Jesse was spending enough time around Damien that he'd recognize this wizardly stick that he carried around regularly while he was wearing his black trench coat. Um, some things to conclude from this mostly is that Jesse Miskelly's confession was not coerced in any meaningful sense of the word. They'd used a little bit of persuasion on him, but apparently they didn't have to use a whole lot. He talked pretty readily, a lot more readily than most murder suspects. Did he understand the implications of his that he was making this confession? Probably not completely, but he'd been told of his rights. He was certainly aware of what he'd done was wrong. Did he know he was going to spend possibly the rest of his life in jail as a result of this confession? Perhaps not. Uh, you could say that about a lot of people who make confessions, but they make them anyway, and they're warned ahead of time. Don't do that. Don't you don't have to talk to us. Uh, nowhere here does uh, his attorney talk about this being a coerced confession. He make ask some questions to open the door to that possibility, but Jesse shuts the door on all that. So when they come up with it a couple of mo a month or two later. The fact is, it, it was made up after the fact when they couldn't come up with, you know, they're looking at what the strategy, Stidham's looking at the strategies for trial, and, he, you know, he's not coming up with a really good plea bargain that he can come up with, so what does he do? He comes up with the false confession story. But it wasn't there on August 19th, 1993. And thank you for bearing with me today. I know that's a lot of reading from a transcript, and perhaps I lost some of you along the way, but, I, you know, I have points to make, and sometimes it requires me going through the whole record. <coughs> As with many of these, I could boil down the phone calls, girl, girl statement, statements to a paragraph or two, and I could do the same thing with 
this transcript, and it would be just as true as this, however long this this uh, podcast episode was. It would be there were some other things along the way. I think we learned, um, but uh, the fact is, is if I don't lay all this out in exquisite detail and ask for somebody to please refute this. They'll say, well, he didn't really say that. That's not what he said. They didn't really say that. Those times didn't really mean what they said they were. They were talking about different times. You know, in other words, in other words playing the Bob Ruff game, which is a step up from the Joe Berlinger game, which is not even acknowledging any of these issues even exist. But it's not much of a step now, is it? Anyway, that's enough for me again today. Episode 42 of the case against. I'll talk to you again soon.